Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg, and I'm here to read to you the Dvar Torah on Parshat B'Shalach. The title is, Do Not Rely on a Miracle. That is actually a quote from Talmud Pesachim 64b, in which the Talmud is referring to how crowd control is exercised in the Holy Temple to prevent overcrowding. One rabbi suggests it was done by ushers who closed the gates. The other suggests, no, the the gates were miraculously closed when the crowd got too large, to which the other replied, we do not rely on a miracle. I'm generalizing the statement in the Torah to highlight the divine policy shift from displaying miracles that dazzle the people into obedience to education and psychological retraining to enlist people to freely follow the Torah. To all outward appearances, Parshat B'Shalach is the archetype of the revelation of God to humanity through awe-inspiring miracles. The natural processes are so completely overturned that there's no room for doubt as to who is the master of the universe. At the same time, the Parsha's counter-narrative teaches us that divine miracle-making does not overcome the flawed character of human nature. B'Shalach starts with perhaps the most important miracle in the Bible, certainly the most celebrated one, the splitting of the Reed Sea. This wondrous event enabled the Israelites to successfully complete their escape from Egypt. The stunning miracle obliterated Pharaoh's army and the residual Egyptian capacity to re-enslave the Hebrews. So if the Exodus liberation is the core experience of Jewish history and religion, then the splitting of the sea is this climactic moment so overwhelming that the Israelites' anxieties and hesitations fell away. Now they know that, quote, God is in his heaven, all's right with the world, close quote, famous line from Robert Browning's Pippa's song. The thrill and the exultant song celebrating the event are so inspiring that the rabbis inserted it into the daily liturgy. Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea is recited just before the Borchel call to prayer. And the reference to the sea split is reprised just before the central Amidah standing silent prayers. On weekdays, this is the liturgical point when the worshippers address God directly, asking for their fundamental needs to be met and for national redemption to be realized. This event confirms, as it were, that prayers for redemption are not said in vain. Quote, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Israel saw the great power the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord. They believed in God and in his servant, Moses. The counter-narrative, however, begins immediately. From the Reed Sea, Moses marches the Israelites into the wilderness of Shur. For three days they find no water sources until they arrive at Mora, where the water is bitter and undrinkable. Thereupon the people turn on Moses. At God's instruction, Moses makes a quick miracle. He takes a branch from a tree, which he throws into the spring, and the water turns potable. That's Exodus 15, 24-26. Less than three weeks later, the people arrive in the wilderness of sin, they have become hungry. Again, they turn on Moses and Aaron. Quote, if only we had died at the hand of the Lord in Egypt, 
where we sat by the flesh pots, where we ate our fill of bread. Instead, you too have, quote, brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. The Lord intervenes with a double miracle. In the evening, flocks of quail cover the campground, providing meat for the taking. And in the morning, manna, man, bread from heaven, floods the desert. People gather all the bread that they can eat. Henceforth and throughout the desert journey, the miracle food will descend daily except on Shabbat. Of course, that's no problem because the two-day-sized portion descends every Friday. Yet, at the next campsite, Rafidim, there is no water. The people assail Moses. Why did you take us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? At God's instruction, Moses strikes a rock. Miraculously, water gushes forth for the whole assembly to drink. This fix works. The people drink their fill and are pacified. But this pattern persists to the very end of the desert trek. At Sinai, the people are overwhelmed with awe and fear of God. Yet when Moses delays coming down from the mountain, the people create a golden calf and dance around the idol, chanting, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See Exodus 32, verse 4. On the way after Sinai, the people get bored with the manna. They revolt and complain that they miss all the delicious, quote, cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic they enjoyed at no charge. In Egypt, Numbers 11.5, God responds by giving them unlimited amounts of quail until they're sick of it. The dead end of this roller coaster trek comes when the spies return from surveilling Canaan. The people panic and they propose to return to Egypt at once. This mutiny is put down by another divine appearance and punishment. The pattern of miracles, followed by relapses, does not change until God acknowledges that the ex-slaves will never be able to function as free people. They must die in the desert. See Numbers chapter 14. Only the new generation, raised in freedom and taught Torah by Moses and Aaron, is up to the challenge of winning a homeland and creating a free society. So as our parasha shows, even visible miracles have only a fleeting surface effect. Why is this so? Because miracles are external experiences that do not change the underlying psychology of the people who witness them. When the miracle is unbelievably powerful, such as at the Reed Sea, people are thunderstruck. They really do believe in God and Moses, momentarily. But three days later, the dazzle has faded. Then the slaves, unaccustomed to the hard work and responsibility taking of the life of freedom, grow tired. They are frightened that the dependable, if meager, slaves' provisions are not there. Yielding to a miracle is like giving in to intimidation. Since the person did not really want to do it, the preferred alternative behavior reasserts itself as soon as one can get away with it. When the fear or the thrill instilled by a miracle fades, the ingrained tendencies or the habitual behavior patterns take over. The individuals go on their way, not the coerced divine way. 
Actually, the deepest message in our parsha then is in its opening declaration that Moses did not take the short route to Israel, that is, the king's highway via the land of the Philistines, because the Israelite slaves were not up to the challenge of fighting a war to win their freedom. See the verse in Exodus 13, verse 17. At that point, there were two choices before God. One, to remove human free will and turn the Israelites, and ultimately all human beings, into robots, perfectly fulfilling God's directions and not deterred by real-life considerations. But Maimonides wrote that out of respect for human beings, God chooses the second option, to accept people as they are. Rather than changing human nature miraculously, the Torah accepts the realities of human nature and human limitations. See Maimonides in the God of the Flex, Part 3, Chapter 32. God enters with humans into a covenantal relationship in which the Israelites are asked to raise the level of their moral performance above the society and culture around them, while moving toward an ultimately higher divine standard. Entering the covenant and applying its standards to daily life and historical challenges is the substance of the next two parshas, Yitro Mishpatim, and will be analyzed in those two different Torah. The Bible's ultimate process is a movement away from visible miracles and public heavenly revelation toward a process of education and persuasion to get people to act properly. Increasingly, the historical outcomes are dependent on human behavior and the equilibrium of their forces rather than on divine intervention. And to see a description of this development in the Bible, we see Richard Friedman's The Disappearance of God, A Divine Mystery. By the time we reach the Talmud, the rabbis tell us that the age of prophecy, that is direct messages from heaven, and of visible miracles is over. Such miracles are too coercive. God wants humans to use their reason and emotions and choose to do the right thing out of free will and choice. Compare the Talmud's reflections on this in Shabbat 88a, particularly in the Tosfot, Kafalim Harkagid. This shift in tactics from miracles to human responsibility explains the fate of idolatry among Jews. Idolatry persisted in the biblical age despite the Torah's full-scale war on it. Even remarkable miracles, such as Elijah's triumph over the prophets of Baal by bringing fire from heaven, won only temporary victories. And to see how temporary compare Elijah's defeat of the idolaters in chapter 18 of 1 Kings with the later behavior of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in chapters 20 and 21. However, in the rabbinic period, when there were no such dramatic divine interventions, the rabbis overcame idolatry completely by universally educating the people with Talmud Torah, study of Torah. They raised the people's level of cultural and philosophical sophistication and thus won the battle against idolatry by transforming people's consciousness. If you will forgive the pun, splitting the Reed Sea made a great splash, but immersion in the sea of Talmudic learning 
transform people for the better.